concerned about you, but I dress in layers. So I kind of take them off as it warms up. So to be in bondage to sin, I, that's very, very fresh. That's very clear in my mind. And when God reached down to me and God told me to read the Bible, literally heard those words in my bedroom. Not the first time, well, probably this was the first time I'd heard this supernatural voice. Uh, and I have heard it since, but this was very clear, just three words, read the Bible. And I was given an old King James Bible when I left school. And um, I started to read that book for the very first time. Uh, from Genesis, and I just kept going. It was really a slog going through Leviticus and things like that, but somehow I did. It probably didn't understand very much. But there is a cumulative effect of Scripture upon a person if they're, if they're searching for God, if they're searching for Christ. And, and at the appropriate time, I wish I could give you the, the text, the verse, but I can't. Uh, at the appropriate time, I just knew, as, as clear as anything, I had to respond to this, this power, really, of the gospel. And I said, if there is a God, if these things are true, I didn't know a Christian on the face of the earth. I wouldn't dream in a million years of going into a church. But I was, I was searching. And so, before I had finished that prayer, I didn't even know how to pray. I don't know if you closed your eyes, folded your hands, knelt down. But in my own awkward way, I, I did it. And I said, if there is a God, if these things are true. And before that, before that thought was even complete... God completely delivered me from sin. Completely brought me into his kingdom. Now, I didn't understand many of the things that we're studying this morning. In fact, Jesus says to the disciples, a lot of things I want to share with you, but you're really not ready for that. And I believe that these other things that Jesus wanted to share uh, came through in the writings of uh, John and Paul and others in the New Testament. So I never want to make a separation between Paul and Jesus. Some theologians do that. Not a good thing to do. Paul is just expanding on the basic uh, themes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I came into God's kingdom, do you remember what we read? Can, those of you that have a good memory, Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified through faith, we have peace with God. And that's certainly what God gave to me. Now, I didn't understand the implications of that piece. I couldn't break it all down. If somebody would have come to me and said, Terry, have you been justified by faith? I wouldn't have a clue what they were talking about. But if they said, do you know Jesus? I would say, absolutely. And Jesus is living in my, in my life. I'm in control of my life. And so as, as, as Christ controlled my life, now remember, I'm, I'm like a, a lone Christian. But as Christ controlled my life, um, and, and I don't know if, if those of you have had some similar experiences I'm talking about, but it really is like a child holding the Father's hand. It really is powerful, incredible answers to prayer. Now, you're not getting these incredible answers to prayer because you're super spiritual. You're getting them because you're a babe in Christ, and you really need a lot of help. And I didn't have any Christians around to help me. That's what Christians are supposed to do, right? Mentor, discipleship, get alongside. 
uh, and be like the Lord Jesus Christ to somebody that needs spiritual help. And so I prayed eventually to, to the Lord to, I said, them, I shared Christ with everybody, Mark, my mom, my dad, who I was living with, my best friend Steve, everywhere, my workmates, nobody understood. The scriptures say spiritual things are what? Spiritually understood. You need a rebirth to, under, to truly understand spiritual things. So when I have Jehovah's Witness knocking at my door, which I did the other day, um, and they're there to teach me about spiritual things, I want to know if they've been born again. Because they believe only the 144,000 should be born again. And we don't quite see it that way, do we? We feel that everyone needs to be have that rebirth so they can understand spiritual things. So I asked God to lead me to his church, and that's another story for another time. But in a very wonderful, miraculous way, he, he led me to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Okay, did we pray? All right, we've prayed. So we're ready to go into Romans chapter 8. But can you see the idea of freedom in the words of Jesus there? That's exactly what we're having in the book of Romans. Whether the word free is used or not, and it is used, but the concept, the idea is there. Every Christian should have the assurance, the confidence, a sense of security that God is always for them, never against them. He's always, even if he brings you through suffering or when he brings you through suffering, and we're going to see that today in Romans 8, it's always for your good. And then, of course, we're going to, I don't know today, but maybe tomorrow, certainly tomorrow we'll get into Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. All right, so let's go with this great verse in verse 1. Therefore, there is now how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the key here is to be in Christ Jesus. That is developed earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 5, especially when he contrasts the, the first Adam and the last Adam. Remember that passage there? We didn't go through it yesterday, but, but it's important to understand that. And also in chapter 6, verses 1 through through at least 10, he develops this idea of, of what it means to be in Christ. And if we have time, we'll look at uh, perhaps chapter 6 later. So there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now somebody says that Romans chapter 8 is the brightest gem in the whole realm of Scripture. Oh, maybe I didn't. In the whole diadem. That sounds better, doesn't it? In the whole diadem of scripture it's a very special chapter and it's it's kind of unfortunate that we're kind of racing through it what what will help what has helped me the most and possibly you is to go through it slowly work through it verse by verse i don't believe any words of paul are wasted i believe everything has meaning whether we understand it or not i believe that's that's the way his inspiration Worked, So, the word therefore is a summarizing thought, statement. Basically, the whole seven chapters are wrapped up in these, in these next verses. Verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 8. So, if you're not, you know, if you're getting lost in Romans 7, for example, you're not understanding who the man is. And, and it's, the scriptures are such a male 
thing, aren't they? Uh, but don't be discouraged that by that ladies. It is sons and daughters of God that are, that are in his, his kingdom. But all of Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, therefore, is summarizing these seven chapters. The concept that needs to come through that is specifically emphasized, I believe, by Paul is to give these Christians assurance. Persecution is going to come. We know about that persecution historically that went on in places like the the Roman Colosseum. Uh, So some of these families are going to be separated, destroyed, um, some of them annihilated. It's going to be really tough times. And as I said yesterday, you'd better know which side your bread is buttered when it comes down to giving up your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, therefore, summarizes the earlier sections there. There is now what? The idea of there is now is a little similar to chapter 3, verse 21, which we did look at yesterday. Something new is coming in here. We've had the negative of chapters 1, 2, and 3, talking about sin, ungodliness, unrighteousness, and so on. But notice in chapter 3, verse 21, but now. It's a very similar statement to what we have here in Romans 8. A righteousness from God. God has acted. God has done something new when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this was the plan and the purpose of God, right? It's very important to understand that. Have you ever heard of dispensationalism? Dispensationalism is, is, uh, is, is wrong concepts as though God had a plan, but he had to modify his plan. And that is not biblical. God is God. Nothing that God does ever gets messed up, right? So his plans and his purposes are always worked out to the letter, even if human beings try and do it some other way, or Satan tries to thwart the plan of God, his plans and his purposes are worked out. So there is now something new. And it's talking about our status, our position. So let me quickly illustrate what I'm talking about there. Um, Somebody said to me the other day, "Uh, did you ever take American citizenship? And I said, no, because I don't really know that there's that many advantages by doing that. So, so my status is not the status of citizen. Most of you, your status is citizen of the United States of America. So I have that immigrant green card status until, until I change that. Now, whether I'm a good man or a bad man is, in a sense, irrelevant when it comes to my standing, when the, when the laws of the land, when the immigration people or whoever want to know what my standing is, I'm going to either be citizen or something else, right? And that's what we're talking about when God declares us, which is what he does with justification by faith. We're going to come across that justification idea quite often in the book of Romans, he declares us, he gives us a new standing, a new status with himself. And it seems to me a lot of Christians don't really grasp this idea, but it's important to grasp this idea because the devil is going to attack you. 
in many different ways. Uh, Ellen White says he's going to try and take away the blessed assurance. So let's assume that you do have assurance of, or you have at least a measure of the assurance of faith. The devil's going to come in. He can't take away your salvation. He has no power to do that, right? So we have to be clear on that. But he can make you a sad Ventist instead of a glad Ventist. And what makes you a glad Ventist, one of the things is definitely that God is for me, that I have that security and that assurance that God has covered all the bases as far as my salvation is concerned. So that little phrase there, there is now, is talking primarily about this new thing that God has done for us, our new position, our new realm. Not talking of our experience, but our standing with Him. And that, of course, as we've said, is one of no condemnation. Now, this chapter begins... With no condemnation. And how does it end? No separation. So, no condemnation, no separation. So, the no separation, we'll get to that in our last presentation. But just notice how, the, how this glorious chapter is held together by these two, these two thoughts. Now, what is the opposite of condemnation? The opposite of condemnation. So you're either condemned or you're accepted. Okay, so now you give me a new word for justification. And sometimes I do that to help people to grasp these concepts. Because we don't really truly have to be hung up on words, though I do think it's, it's pretty safe to stick with the language of Scripture. But as you know, there are always new Bibles being translated and new ways of, of expressing things. So sometimes it's good to try and think of Give me some, some other words that you think will give the same idea, the same concept. I've, I've, in a sense, given you one when I, from Jesus' mouth, the idea of freedom. Now you're giving me one, acceptance. So justification, and this is very strong now in, in the latest studies on Pauline theology, uh, which, of course, you all study very carefully, don't you? You get all those those wonderful manuscripts coming into your home from the latest New Testament scholarship. But one of them is, is an Englishman, N.T. Wright. You have to watch out for these Englishmen. Uh, and he's C of E, Church of England, uh, but a very brilliant man. And, um, and, and he wants to bring the idea out with, through justification of, of acceptance. That's something that he would feel really, really comfortable with. He feels that's a more biblical way of talking about it than even Luther did. In the Reformation, Luther, the way he approached the concepts of justification, was always in this conflict with, with Rome, with Catholicism. Oh, by the way, Catholicism does not believe in uh, assurance of salvation. They do not. So that I have a whole presentation on that. Um, well, that's a good question. Why would they not believe in... <laughs> they get money from... from pen the whole, the whole Roman system, it seems to me, makes you dependent on the system. And that, that is, well, just that little story I told you of my own experience, where was the system? There was no church system. I wasn't going to church. I didn't know Christians. I wasn't coming from that background. I was a very secular person. But if I had, if I had uh, been born into the, into the Roman Catholic Church and 
and had strayed away and suddenly found Christ and suddenly found the gospel, well, they would be trying to bring me back into the system. The system is where the control is. And a lot of, a lot of religion, a lot of even Christianity, or so-called Christianity, is about control. So that's one of the reasons I could give why they don't believe and, and, and deeply discourage any notions of the assurance of salvation. So, that, so I suppose that brings up a fundamental point, now that I think about it, is do we believe as Seventh-day Adventists that it's even possible to have the assurance of salvation? Because if we're from a Roman Catholic, and there's many Roman Catholics that become Seventh-day Adventists, if we're from a Roman Catholic background, maybe, maybe it's, in, it's in our makeup not to believe in that. Maybe we would find that very, very hard to truly believe that God has totally, fully, completely accepted us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Anyway, it says here, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that idea of being in Christ Jesus is the key phrase of the Apostle Paul. It's used over and over again in his writings, and it's very important to understand what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And as I indicated earlier, Romans 5 Uh, Part of Romans 6 really helps you to understand what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And those that are in Christ Jesus, those are the ones that are Christians. So how do you define a Christian? Uh, I've kind of got to the point where I really don't ask people too often if they're Christians because it's such a misunderstood concept. Well, well, here's, here's the definition of those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, those that are Christians, rather, they are the ones who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, if we get to Romans uh, 8, verse 9, then it's, then it's those who have the Holy Spirit. So different ways of explaining who a Christian is. Another way would be those who keep the commandments of God. That's something that Seventh-day Adventists would emphasize and feel very comfortable with. Lots of different ways of explaining who we are in Christ Jesus. And it's important to know whether you are a Christian, genuinely a Christian, of the Spirit in Christ Jesus, or whether you're not. Because do you remember Jesus says in in Matthew 7, I believe it is, that many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and we did that in your name. Now, it isn't just anyone that calls Jesus Lord. That's a very lofty concept. So they obviously feel that they, they, they are following Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord, we did this, that, and the other in your name. And Jesus doesn't say they didn't, didn't do those things. But what does he say? I never knew you. Somebody asked me what did I speak about here uh, some years ago. And I have a tough time remembering to tell the truth. But I think it was this concept of what it really means to know God. And I use the book of Ephesians uh, quite a lot as, as I explain that. And by the way, if though, for those of you that are taking notes, and, and I hopefully will repeat this later, but let's, let's try and just in, in a few seconds give you the, some of the main places in the New Testament to understand this assurance of salvation. I would say, um, I would say clearly the book of Ephesians, the first, first three chapters, are profound profound scripture on a level with with romans 8 there's passages in romans 1 in ephesians 1 and ephesians 3 that are are on a level with with romans chapter 8 the book of philippians is very helpful colossians 
Um, what about First John? The whole book seems to me to be on having this confidence, this assurance that you are, uh, that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are a few places, and maybe you can suggest some others that have been very helpful in giving you this. In fact, one gentleman yesterday gave me a text in Hebrews 10, which very much summarized what I was saying yesterday to him. So there are numerous places. Obviously, God doesn't just want to save us. Because let's face it, um, I certainly believe that a person can be saved and not have the assurance of salvation. Many of the reformers didn't believe that. But again, their conflict was with Rome. So that, so that kind of colors everything that they, they tend to say. And though Luther, Calvin, and so on have glorious things to say about salvation and the gospel and so on, uh, we don't agree with absolutely everything that they, the way that they expressed it. So God does want us to have this assurance. Many do not have it. And I mentioned yesterday that uh, general conference presidents, not just one, but numerous general conference presidents, as they've toured the world field, and, they've, and I've lived in a few places. I was talking with some of you yesterday who have lived in many places in the world. I've lived a little short time in the Middle East. I've lived in Europe, of course, and I'm living here. And wherever I've been, I've found many Seventh-day Adventists that do not have the assurance of salvation. Living a life of guilt, feeling unworthy, this fits in perfectly with the strategy of Satan. He can't, he can't take away your salvation. He's hopping mad at you that you believe and follow Jesus Christ, right? Someone's up early. We think it's a big deal to come here early in the morning, but they're flying jet planes early in the morning. So, so Satan will try and find an Achilles heel. He'll try and find something in your belief system where he can attack, where there's a weakness. So at least I don't want us to have a weakness in this area. There are different levels of assurance. The greatest level of assurance, or let's give you the simple, sim, go from the simplest to the greatest. The simplest level of, of assurance is where, where Jesus will say, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Okay, I know the Son, therefore I'm free. So it's just deduction. So that's like, that's like a assurance 101. And you've got to start somewhere, right? But you can also have the assurance of salvation where the Holy Spirit just falls on you and you know. You know that God is for you better than you know your spouse, your loved ones. You just are overwhelmed. In fact, one of the passages we looked at yesterday in Romans 5, 5 I think it is, is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our life. And that's the first time he brings in the concept of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, in the context of justification and assurance uh, that all Christians should have. All right, I think I've covered most of what I want to say on verse 1. I'm just going to summarize it here by saying that we should not just be saved, but we should be enjoying our salvation, our relationship with God. 
We should never allow ourselves to feel the condemnation of the law. Are we under the law? No. Some say yes, some say no. Scripture clearly says no, we're not under the, the law. Are we under sin? Now we've skipped chapter 6 and a lot of these concepts are there. Let's go to Romans 6 just so we can say we've been there. Why is Now I did tell you the answer to this yesterday. Let's see who's got a good memory. Why is Romans 6 written? Is it the main argument or is it a detour? Detour, what kind of detour? Why, why is it written? Anyone remember? It's dealing with an objection to the gospel of grace. So he has said through Romans 5, and he's summarizing it at the end there, in Romans 5, the law was that is that trespass might increase, where sin increased, grace what? increased or abounded all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, sin was reigning. But now something else is reigning and it's grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you know that someone is going to take that dangerous doctrine. Can I say that about the glorious gospel of Christ? It is, it is dangerous doctrine. Well, it's not dangerous doctrine if you understand the concept. It's glorious. But many don't. And so there were people that were saying in Paul's day, I can sin as much as I want because grace is going to cover. And the more I sin, the more that grace will abound. And how does Paul answer that? God forbid. You couldn't get anything much stronger than that. God forbid. And so then he takes you into chapter 6. Remember that these weren't written in chapters So this is a little detour to deal with this problem of people abusing the doctrine of grace. Does that go on today? Big time. Big time problem. Now, I must admit, I don't really believe that I've met a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who are so much into grace that they abuse grace. That hasn't particularly been my experience. But I do know in the Christian world, that tends to be an issue. And many, many pastors have, have started to address that. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. All right, so there's the end of sin right there. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Jesus' death is whose death? Our death. Jesus' resurrection is whose resurrection? Our resurrection. What about his ascension? Our ascension. What about his reign in heaven? You're you're in Christ. So at whatever stage Jesus goes through, spiritually, you go through that too. Now, did Jesus die once for all to sin? So you and I are to die at once for all to sin. You have to look at your Christian life as totally wrapped up in the body of Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the biblical concept that Paul is... That's what it means to be in... or part of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. So he says... 
Verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that's what the Holy Spirit has brought to us, this new life. The old life, what does that give us? It gives us sin. It gives us death. The devil is, is, is very much there. It's all negative. That's gone. If we have been united with him, verse 5, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Some pretty powerful statements there. And you're thinking, how can we die to sin? How can we be freed from sin when I'm still dealing with sin in my life, in my body? Right? Who's not thinking that thought at this point in time? We do have to die daily, but what does that mean? What does that mean? In many respects, a lot of the issues that I see in the Seventh-day Adventist Church revolve around the body. Your body. My body. Um, My wife and I can remember as clear as day we were in a church district and we were trying so I was trying so hard to, to teach this lady about righteousness by faith. So I was coming at it from all sorts of angles and, and thinking, well, one of the, something's going to, the penny's going to drop at some point. And when she turned to me it, it, with so much sincerity and she says, Pastor, when I can give up butter, I've arrived. And she was so sincere. And I knew she was clueless. She was totally clueless about the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. She just didn't get it. Now, in God's grace, hopefully she will somewhere down the road and that she doesn't have too many years of being a sad ventist, loaded with guilt, never feeling good enough. Um, Just a sad situation to be in. Let's finish this off. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, there's a lot of implications of these verses. And we're not only going to be able to develop a few ideas, mainly from Romans chapter 8. But remember, Romans 8 isn't bringing anything, anything new. There's really nothing new in Romans 8. The seeds of, of these truths are all in these earlier chapters. And it just flowers, it just comes to fruition in Romans chapter 8. So in Romans chapter 8, for example, he will talk about mortifying, King James translation, mortifying uh, the sin or the deeds of the body. So that, that concept is there. But it's, it's already here in chapter 6. So Christians can't just say, praise God, no condemnation. I've seen, I've seen congregations so excited when I've preached just that one verse with, with all the power that God can give me. And they're just on tiptoe. They're just so excited. Well, the reality is, it is glorious good news. It's what every human being needs to hear. But you've still got to live this stuff on a daily basis, Right? So you've got to get down to where the rubber meets the, meets the road. And I believe that comes through in, um, when we get to Romans 8, verse 4. So let's quickly go back to Romans 8. But can you see in Romans 6, before I 
move on. Can you see Christ's death, your death? Christ's resurrection. So you've got to develop that all the way through. And and it's developed in the book of Ephesians. So in the book of Ephesians, he talks that we're sitting in heavenly places. When? Now or future? Now. We're sitting in heavenly places now. If a Christian can grasp that concept, I don't know how they could ever be depressed. I don't know how they could ever have low self-worth. And you've got to remember that there's a lot of people... Uh, some people in this tent this morning who have serious issues with depression, who have serious issues with child abuse and, and parents telling them that they're worthless and they'll never amount. I mean, we have a lot of people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who have really low self-esteem for many reasons. Well, if anything's going to give you a strong backbone and a feeling of good self-worth, and God does want us to have that, then surely it's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, is doing, will do. Salvation has past, present, future dimensions. It's important to remember that. Scripture says we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. All of those different uh, aspects or tenses are there in Scripture. All right, let's go through Romans 8. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin. So we've just said we're not under law, and now we're reading about the law of the spirit of life. So obviously law can be used in different ways in Scripture. We're not under the condemnation of the law. That's, That's important to grasp that. But even more important to grasp is that there's, there's another law that's kicking in. And it's called the law of the spirit of life. So this is the Holy Spirit coming in and giving us this new life, something the law could never do. Why could the law not do that? What was the obstacle to the fulfillment of the law in our life? Sin in the body, Paul says. So there's these these different powers that are vying for mastery. The power of sin, is that a strong power? It's strong enough to send our Lord to the cross. It must be pretty, pretty bad, pretty strong. But something stronger has come along. The power of grace, the power of the new life, that the Holy Spirit brings into us. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus was a really sincere Pharisee, and there were many good Pharisees. And I know they don't get the most positive picture in the New Testament, and some of Jesus' most scathing rebukes are given to to the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23. But he didn't want them to commit the unpardonable sin, right? So, so it's always God is, is going to do the best he can to get that person into a right relationship. And if that means strong rebuke at the appropriate time, so be it. Jesus certainly was up up for that. So the new life, that's what Jesus talked about. You must be born again. How can this be, Nicodemus said? And what did Jesus say? You You understand earthly things, but you don't understand spiritual things, and yet you're a teacher of Israel. You know, where's the paradox there? That's what I meant when I talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses straightening me out on truth. 
and they're not even claiming to be, to be converted or born again. So to get this new life, you and I can't even begin to keep any of the will of God as revealed in His law, for example, unless we have this new life of the Spirit within us. But if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, the third person of the Godhead, and you're cooperating with Him in developing this character to be like Christ, then there is no limit. Well, you could say there is a limit because we have a sinful body still. When is that changed? You've been saved, but your body's not. Can we say that? I think that's legit to say that myself. When, does your bo- when is your body saved? When Christ comes back. And what happens to your body? It is transformed into something like His glorious body. Now, it doesn't mean to say you become God. It's not saying that at all. But you will, be, you will have a body that is everything in your body is in total harmony with God. So most of the problems, most of the hangouts that we have as Seventh-day Adventists revolve around not just butter, but the body. <clears throat> so you need to come to terms with the body. Many of us don't like our bodies. We want to be better looking. We want to be taller. We want whatever. Why? The Holy Spirit better had dwell there. Romans 8, verse 9, if we do not have the Spirit, we are none of His. So the Holy Spirit does dwell within us. And as I'm saying, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, brings this new life to us, there is really, uh, we should never put any limitations. That's what I'm trying to say. We should never put any limitations of what a human being can become. They're going to be conformed into the image of God. Wow, that's a pretty glorious image, don't you think? To be God-like. So I don't want to put any limitations on you and you put any limitations on me. We're all trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This new life, this Holy Spirit is what's going to get us there. So he calls it here, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. Does it say that Jesus was sinful here? No, it says in the likeness, he took our sins upon himself to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. And here's the key verse, or a key verse, in order. Why have you been saved? Verse 4, he's telling you, one one of the reasons. In order that the righteous requirements of the law, which we said yesterday, only one person could, could meet those righteous requirements of the law. I don't care what those requirements are, whether they are ceremonial, whether they are moral, whether they are health, or whether they are something that I'm not even thinking of. All the demands of a holy God that he expected from the human race, that he expected from Adam in the garden, Jesus has fully met them. Lived a perfect life, right? No one could condemn him of sin. So perfect, perfect. He is the representative of the human race. Adam was the first representative of the human race. What happened with Adam? He fell. So that concept is developed in Romans 5. When Adam fell, we all fell. When, when, the, when the last Adam succeeded, then... Actually, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it says many. 
It says many. So there's a little bit of a distinction there. But the possibility is for all. God wants all to be saved. But it's the many that fulfill that. So in order that righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. So I'm probably going to jump a little bit over these verses here just for the sake of time. Um, but, but what I do want you to notice is that the Holy Spirit is being mentioned over and over again. Uh, Ellen White, when she talks, about, talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, and now that we have this study on revival and reformation, you're going to hear a lot about the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, in your Sabbath school classes. The more we understand of the way he works, the easier it is going to be for you and I to live this Christian life. Jesus says his, his, his yoke is not, not heavy, it's not a burden. We should, I'm not saying that it's not a narrow road that we have to walk as a Christian. In many respects it is. But it is a road that we should enjoy. Are you enjoying? Are you enjoying your relationship with Christ? So there's another word that we could possibly use, uh, that we could throw in. Not just to have the assurance of salvation um, or the fact that we're accepted by God. I mean, we could, we could feel we're accepted by God, but we could respond to that in a grudging way. Well, he had to let me in. I am a pretty good person. I mean, there's lots of different ways, negative ways we could, we could approach that, but to enjoy this relationship. Don't you feel sometimes that when you're in prayer, when you study in Scripture, that it's just, to me, it's just like warm fuzzes. Now, I'm not saying it's always like that, because it's not. Feelings, feelings uh, are fickle. They come and go. But sometimes I feel God is so close, I could just literally put my arm around him. Don't you... Some of you have experienced that? Well, that's, that's all the working of the Holy Spirit, trying to make God very, very real to us. So these passages here talk a lot about that. Um, let's go to verse 12 and just spend a moment on this. Therefore, there's another summary statement. We have an obligation. So when you're saved, you have an obligation. It is not to the sinful nature... If you live according to the sinful nature, verse 13, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Daughters of God. Can we put that in here? For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now this is a very... I don't know if, if the word delicate is, is good to use here with Abba, but it's a very intimate term. And, and it came from the lips of Jesus. And for a Jew to hear someone like Jesus using the word Abba would, would just kind of stop them in their tracks. Because people didn't talk about God this way. To me, this is one of the great contributions of Christianity, that we can have this, this very, very personal, close relationship with God. I mean, let's face it, we could be saved and keep God at a distance or try to keep God at a distance. Um, William Miller, what was he at one time? A deist. That's basically what deists believe. Yeah, of course there is a God. And he's like a big clock watchmaker and he starts the clock and he puts his laws in motion and he lets them run and he looks at it all from a distance. Well, Jesus dying on the cross 
And this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives shows that it's very up close and personal, right? And if you, if you, if you can capture that in your own life and you can communicate that to other people, whether they're saved or whether they're not saved, then it's a very precious thing, it seems to me, that you are communicating. Because I don't know where you find that anywhere else in the religious world. This intimacy. So maybe it's summarized in this word, Abba. Sons, daughters, children of God. So the word acceptance, which is family, accepted into the family of God, surely that applies here. Now if we are children, verse 17, then we are heirs. So what does Jesus inherit? So let's carry on that concept. His death is our death, his resurrection, his ascension ours. His inheritance is ours. So, so if, if it blew your mind to think that you're sitting in heavenly places, it should blow your mind even more to think that your inheritance is the same as Christ's inheritance too. You are in him. Co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. Mm, We need to wrap up here now. All right, I'm going to wrap it up in just 60 seconds here. And it it brings us into this whole concept of suffering, and it contrasts sufferings with the glory. Now, we talked briefly about the glory yesterday. This is the whole goal of this redemption of the human race and this reconciliation of the universe. It's all to work to the glory of God. God's character, in a sense, is on the line. He's going to be glorified. So salvation is really not so much about you and me, even though it is. It's much more about God and God being glorified in in this whole process. So Paul will speak in another way as though we are on display before the whole universe. And those angels and those unfallen beings are scratching their angelic unfallen heads. And they're saying, how can it be? How can that wife beater, how can that drunkard who always cursed and blasphemed God until he was 80 years of age, how can he suddenly be singing God's praises? So all of this, the salvation of every human being is all working. And the purpose and the plan is for the glory of God. So that is developed in the next verses. In verse 22, he says, we know the whole creation has been groaning. He says in in verse 26, we do not know. And then he says in verse 28, we know. So we know, we do not know, we know. What do we know? Well, that's why we're here this morning, isn't it? To try and know, to try and understand. It's all about relationship. It's all about creation. It's all about our creator God and our relationship with him. So the creation is affected. Human beings are are affected as part of that creation. You and I will find ourselves in situations that are so traumatic, so confusing, so difficult in our life. The suffering is so intense that we do not even know what, how to pray. Do you ever remember that story of Joy Swift? Some of you remember that? 
And she came back, and the house had been burnt up, if my memory serves me right, and her children had died, been, been murdered. Can you remember that, that story? It was pretty big amongst Adventists at one time. Her books are still around. Now, I don't know if she was a Christian or not at that time, but how do you even begin to pray in times like that? How, when you're a missionary and you're serving God and you're in some foreign country and you, you've sacrificed so much and they are just raping you and raping you and raping you. What do you pray for in times like that? So here in these verses, he says that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, this is very comforting for some people. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. So you have the Lord Jesus Christ interceding for you. You have the Holy Spirit interceding for you with word, groans, words that cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in total harmony representing you. The Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we're going to end up in verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Do you love God? It's kind of interesting that he words it that way. He said so much about faith, so much about belief. But I think we can see from chapter 6, verse 1, that there were some that misunderstood faith and misunderstood belief. And so by phrasing it this way, for those who love God, it makes it more powerful that we're in a love relationship with God. And if we are in a love relationship with God, we should know for sure that we are saved. Because there aren't too many people, right, who are in a love relationship with God who are not saved. So we're going to pick it up. It's going to get really interesting tomorrow. Increasingly so. It just gets more and more glorious as we get near the end of the chapter. So we're going to, I want you to think about this. Let, let me, this is your homework to think about how all things work together for good. How is it possible that all things work together for good for those that love God? All things, the good and the bad. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for this this beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to, to learn these things, to study these things, to, to most importantly to apply them to our lives. There are many glorious promises that we have covered in the last few days and, and the next few days. Help us to claim these promises, Lord, to apply them to our lives. They are given for our encouragement to conform us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you for this glorious gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.